0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast or wherever you get this podcast and leave us a review. Sadly, you can't actually review on Spotify, but maybe they'll change that one day. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we really appreciate a couple of minutes of your time to, to leave us a review. So, joining and um, Brian and myself in our virtual studio, um, we're talking again to, uh, to Rosie Allister. Thank you, uh, Rosie, for, for joining us.
1: No problem. It's nice to be here.
0: Um, um, Rosie, you're uh, um, in, in our in our mind. You're um, um, synonymous with with vet life, and, uh, and I imagine is that your full time an appointment at the moment or are you um involved in other projects
1: i know so it's, it, i spend part of my time with vet life um which is a charity that supports the veterinary community i help to run the helpline at vet life which is a 24-hour day 365 day a year helpline for everyone in the veterinary community. Um, But as well as doing that, I work in academic research and particularly around veterinary mental health, the transition to practice, veterinary identity and veterinary suicide prevention. And I'm also involved in a number of other projects as well
0: obviously um keep yourself busy and and uh before we went on over talking about trying to uh, stop your dog from chasing squirrels as well so uh so it keeps you occupied outside of uh outside of the working environment as well so um i suppose like, maybe we should we should start with the uh elephant in the room being uh covid 19 and the um and the and the fallout from that and when we were speaking Last year, it was quite early days in in the the lockdown period, and I suppose how has vet life managed with the um, I suppose the continuation of lockdown and and the changes with restrictions, and how has your team sort of found that, and and also I suppose are there anything that's been um, more coming up in, in concerns that people have or calls that you, you have or themes, I suppose?
1: Sure, so I think over the last year, one of the things we've noticed first is how much busier we've been. Um, so we had a just over 25% increase in our calls um, in 2020, compared with 2019, and that increase appears to be continuing um, in 2021 as well. So we have been really busy. Um, Within that busyness is a lot of different experiences. Obviously, everybody's experience of COVID has been different. We've supported people through the whole range of experiences that people have had in our professions over this year. And I think one of the real challenges for us as a service is that our volunteers, the strength of what we do is that we are peers who are trained, who connect with people and understand and our peers have gone through some of the same things. And so it's interesting kind of thinking about how we can support our volunteers as well through this really difficult time so that they can keep supporting other people.
0: And um, 25% is quite a, a massive increase. And have you had to or have you managed to, to recruit more people to, to help your team or are you, is that an ongoing um uh, idea or ongoing recruitment that's suppose you should say.
1: Yeah absolutely so we have a sort of open recruitment um, policy at Helpline and we're always recruiting. Um, over the last 12 months we've had 25 new volunteers start on Helpline um, which is quite a lot for a year and we're really glad that we've been able to do that. Um, The volunteers at Helpline really are the strength of what we do. They're a fantastic group of people and um, it's great to introduce new people to our team.
0: I imagine it's quite a... um a rigorous sort of re- recruitment process and um and do, do you have do you, just a, a sign, I don't know, it's not necessarily what we're going to talk about but do a lot of people um drop out of that because of the the context of everything that they will need to sort of manage or or do you find that the the, the training you have and the support sort of makes that um comprehensible
1: yes It's a really good question. Um, So our recruitment is a long process. And, you know, I think it's it's it is part of the challenge for people, I think, when they want to volunteer with us, that it can take a year or more from when people first apply until when they start volunteering. And for some people, it can be up to two years. And that's important to us that we take it slowly that everybody involved us and the potential volunteer can think really carefully about whether it's the right thing so yeah we do a lot in our recruitment we have initial information for people where we explain quite clearly we hope about what the role involves and the different types of support that are available for volunteers and indeed are compulsory for volunteers so very much when people start volunteering with us we need them to agree that they're going to be using the supports available for us as well it's very much part of our culture within helpline that we all access support and that's really important um, so yeah people apply they're then interviewed by a member of our selection team there's then a team meeting that decides about progression decisions and and that's very much a decision um, that's both for the potential volunteer as well so we're very open about the demands of the role um, and we let people choose whether it's right for them as well as us choosing whether we think that their type of listening is a fit for us um, we've moved our training online during the pandemic. Um, It was quite a challenge. Not many helplines do initial training online, um, and certainly very few did before the pandemic. But um, it's actually been a really interesting process in terms of reviewing the training and reviewing the supports that we have during our initial training. So, our initial training is intensive. Um, And it is quite hard and there's a lot of people involved in delivering it. So to deliver our last training, which was for 15 people, we had 34 volunteers involved in helping with that training because we give people practice calls. We do practice emails with people. We have um, mentors. We have quite an involved induction process as well. So yeah, it's, it's a big operation recruitment, but it's so important to us that our volunteers feel supported. And when people start with Helpline, We try and make sure there's a lot of support in place for people. So um, we we do handover at the end of every shift to the next volunteer. Um, So you'll always be talking to somebody. Um, New volunteers have a mentor for the first six months. They do a period of shadowing. Um, We have regular catch-ups for training groups so that they can talk with each other. We have compulsory annual training for all volunteers. We have group supervision Uh, four times a year and we have compulsory individual supervision with a clinician as well Um, so there's a lot of um, a lot of different types of support that go on and that's really important to us.
0: And Rosie has it been um, challenging because of not having a ability to to meet um, physically with people? Do people have uh, you know, come across challenges because of everything being online and, and looking at a, at a at a screen I suppose in general for your for your staff as well as um, um
1: yeah so I can certainly speak to that about helpline first and then I'll speak to it more broadly maybe so within helpline um although there's a big group of volunteers so we now have around about 90 volunteers um We are very close and we are very supportive of each other and we very much are a team. Helpline is an amazing team. We have a a second on call facility um, for Helpline, which is what people use if there's a phone call comes in and they're already on the phone or they've just taken a phone call. Um, And our second on call facility works via a group where the um, the fact that there is a second call is made available to a group of volunteers and the group of volunteers can just volunteer to take it if they're free. And the um, the fastest response time um, ever on there is at one second floor, somebody saying that they can take it. And almost all of the responses on there are under a minute in terms of the second on call group wanting to take those calls. And I think that reflects very much the culture within helpline which is very very supportive of other volunteers and of our callers that if we know someone's calling people will come to help they always do and it's it's so kind of inspirational to see that happen and um, it has been difficult being a part because that support for each other is so important. Sometimes the calls we take are really difficult, and at those times we really need to know each other well and be able to support each other effectively. So we found it hard not meeting in person. Um, However, I think it has challenged us to do everything we can to connect with each other remotely. So we have... Increase the number of sessions where we have catch-ups for people who've just done training, we've had um, social events very regularly for volunteers um, online throughout the pandemic, um, we have check-in contacts with people. We have It's really made us think a lot more I think and maybe not take for granted some of those opportunities to connect that we had before. Um, I think we're very much looking forward to a time when we can be together again but I think we'll also retain some of that learning that we've had through this really difficult experience. I think more widely in the vet profession, I've definitely seen a a fatigue in terms of on-screen contact. And um, I think um, sometimes representing a more general overwhelm just with the number of demands that people are facing and I think the uncertainty and the difficulty in balancing all of those things. And the intrusion of work into home spaces that previously maybe had more boundary from work um, and I think that it's important that we think about how that can affect wellbeing. and that works better for some people and I think it's good for us to reflect on why, particularly for groups who maybe were previously too excluded before, so people with disabilities and people with certain caring requirements. However, I think it has also disadvantaged other groups and it's important that we consider how we can support people who are experiencing that and how we can make adjustments for people who are experiencing screen fatigue um, or who are experiencing real difficulty in, in balancing work and those intrusions into home life and spaces.
0: Can I ask Rosie, the the 25% increase, do you think that's in direct relation to COVID-19 or do you think there's other factors involved in in that?
1: Yeah, I think it's both. Um, So, our calls have been increasing um, for at least the last um, eight years. So, um, Our calls have been going up for some time. Um, We have continued to do the things that made our calls go up. So we've continued to reach out to people and to ask people to call us and to explain how confidential we are and that it's a safe place to contact. So I think there is inevitably an effect there as well. And we want that. We want more people to feel able to call because we know that there are more people maybe struggling, maybe who might benefit from talking, who don't feel able to. So we want that to happen. However, there has definitely been COVID effects as well. We've seen some peaks through the year, um, particularly at the time of the first and second lockdowns, um, particularly um, around particular challenges, I think, that the veterinary professions have faced, um, certainly in terms of, feeling overwhelmed by work um, after lockdown as well um, and around real challenges for people who are studying. So part of our first peak uh, during the first lockdown was from veterinary students who were concerned about study. We're still getting a lot of contacts from veterinary students who are concerned about opportunities for practice placements, those kinds of things. And so it's kind of, um, it definitely has been relating to COVID as well. We're also talking to a lot of people who are experiencing um, maybe exacerbations of mental health difficulties stress physical health difficulties because of of covid um, and also really big financial challenges as well
0: so, so very um, very very broad as as, as well as as um, as, as covid um, and could I are oh, sort of moving slightly slightly sort of on from that um, what 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 um, what strategies could you um, tell i suppose uh, employers for for new graduates to help sort of with the the transition into into practice in in these times at the moment because i suppose even when we're talking in the uk that um, maybe restrictions might be lifted um, by the time people start jobs in the in the summer but i suppose we, we don't know do we so so um so do you think that there should be extra support or different support to, to help our um, new graduates at this time?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, and I think there's so much that employers can do to help new graduates with this transition, particularly at this time. And some of it's evidence-based from research that I've done. Some of it is transferring evidence across from we know what helps, um, particularly perhaps in healthcare workers. Um, One of the key points I would say is around communication and really intelligent communication, because one of the difficulties that staff have been experiencing through this time is is uncertainty. Um, And communication can help with that. And I know it feels really challenging as leaders when we don't have the answers. But sometimes it is about regular communication, um, updating with um, decisions that have been made, updating with issues that they're hearing and that their understanding are there. So that kind of communication is really important. And I think there is this worry among a lot of veterinary students that I'm speaking to at the moment in different spaces around the opportunities they've had, particularly for EMS and for um sort of technical experience and and whilst I know that as senior clinicians we are often eager to reassure um, new graduates that there are those opportunities to to practice those technical skills in practice. And what's most important in a lot of the research about what employers look for is is around attitude um, and fitting in with the team. I think it's hard for new graduates to perceive that. Um, That's something that maybe does become more apparent with experience. And so I think there's a lot that um, employers could do in terms of reassurance for new graduates around Communication around, well, what stage do you feel at maybe with these key sentinel procedures and what support do you need to be able to do these and think very practically in terms of that. So um, things that you would do typically in an induction anyway um, an induction period at work where perhaps you are um, giving extra time in consults where you're talking very practically about the types of surgical support required so does somebody need somebody scrubbed in with them do they need them in the room do they need them in the building do they need them on the phone those things are very different experientially for the new graduate Um, and then I think just really good practice around um, induction and induction is something that I think sometimes it's done exceptionally well in VET, um, but often um, could be improved. Um, Key things around induction for new graduates are um, around things like shadowing, like getting chance to understand how the practice works, and um, it's one of those things that again, with seniority, you forget how long it takes to to work all the different software that we use, or find out where to park on all the different yards, or um, or you know who pays for the petrol and all those kinds of things, and that can just be very a lot of over overload for people when they first start, when they're already dealing with decision fatigue around all of the clinical decisions and clinical responsibility and that transition to taking on that clinical responsibility. So induction and thinking really carefully about induction would be a key priority for me. And I would recommend shadowing. Um, I would also recommend really clear expectations around soul on call. In particular, because solo on call is a big cause of difficulty, stress, and difficulty that's actually then experienced um, by new graduates. So it's not just around worry around it; it's around difficulties that actually then happen. Um, so thinking very carefully about solo on call: is it reasonable, for example, that somebody doesn't do any on call maybe for their first month because um, you know they're settling into a new job? It is much more exhausting to be brand new in a place and brand new with all of the skills as well, um, and then maybe. Would you think about um, the type of rotor that they were then put onto, the amount of second-on-call support they have? Um, those kinds of things can really help with transition um, and can make it a much better experience for everybody. The other thing I would mention in COVID is one of the things I've observed and have found in research as well, is that um, new graduate support is often very vulnerable to issues with staffing. In practices so where there are staffing challenges in practice new graduate support is often one of the first things to to drop and I know that's not anybody's intention but it has a big impact on the people that it happens to and quite often for various reasons which again with seniority maybe um, may feel a lot further away um new graduates don't always feel able to communicate around that so one of the things I found in my research with new graduates was this very pervasive, almost um, universal sense of being a burden. Um, which trying to address in all sorts of ways um, with the work I do with uh, students. But um, if you can imagine that perhaps your new graduate does feel like a burden, and maybe is finding it hard to ask for help, then one of the things you can very helpfully do as an employer is really encourage them and do positive role modeling around help seeking around case discussion. You know that the senior people in the practice go to others for help as well, um, making it very clear that you're pleased when they contact you for help. Um, being really um, willing with that support, being generous with that support. And then as well, um, I think just making it clear to people that they're not a burden on the practice, because that is something that is perceived by new graduates for various complex reasons. And that in itself causes behaviour that then may not be helpful um, for those individuals either in terms of their well-being, in terms of help seeking, but also sort of clinically, um, you know, with clinical and patient scenarios.
0: It, with with the um i suppose uh, another element i just wonder about when vets normally take new jobs they they move to to different areas and sort of remove themselves i suppose from some of the support structures that they have and and maybe they you, you know i suppose vets do tend to socialize with other vets and is there a is that a perceived sort of problem as well that they can't you know go out with their, their their veterinary team or or you know have a social sort of out of work life with that
1: yeah very much and i think you know particularly for people in certain types of veterinary practice they may have no choice but to be quite a distance from friends and family. And it may be more difficult for them to access those supports as well. Um, so you, know, you couldn't just go home at the weekend, those kinds of things at the moment. And and that is difficult because what we know about new graduates is that often um, friends and family supports are very, very important and are favoured over other types of support, even when it's um, maybe mental health problems that somebody is experiencing. So it is important to be aware that those supports and those contacts um, may be um, more difficult than usual. And I think for people who are working in new graduate roles, often I think as more senior vets, it's easy to forget how exhausting those can be and how people can then feel limited energy to do these kind of online social contacts that maybe um, would be an alternative I think as well, a lot of the support we offer in practice involves physical proximity as well, whether it's scrubbing in, whether it's going into a room to ask somebody something, these kind of non-transactional kind of uh, casual conversations that we might have in practice where you're just walking past someone in the corridor and you start to discuss the call you've just been on, those kinds of things. And all of those things are more constrained at the moment. So I think, you know, potentially new graduates now, they don't have such easy access to all of those informal supports. What we know about healthcare workers as well is that one of the things that can be incredibly helpful for a whole range of difficulties at work, so potentially moral injury, potentially compassion fatigue, um, lots of different sort of issues that can occur in the workplace that may affect our mental well-being. One of the really key things for those is opportunities for... Um, peer conversations in the workplace in a sort of in a break room in a rest space kind of informal peer support conversations so so not necessarily a trained peer supporter but just a colleague who cares those kinds of interactions are super super important and they're harder because of covid because people are um distancing more at work, Um, they're maybe eating separately, they're spending breaks separately, they're maybe not meeting in the practice in a way that they would in between calls. So I think being really aware of that for new graduates, because one of the real challenges for new graduates as well is that Um, As established clinicians, we have a lot of our support networks ready made because um, we've established those over many years. We know who our friends are. We know who our colleagues are, who will help us with different things. And new graduates just don't know that. And it's sometimes harder to create those networks. And so anything we can do to support new graduates in terms of making those explicit, and making those easy to negotiate and navigate is going to be really helpful um so i think yeah checking in with new graduates um both socially and in terms of um instrumental supports at work so quite practical supports around workplace issues
0: that's great thank you rosie and speak and with, with with uh ourselves sort of um transitioning to to different different times and maybe with eases of of social restrictions and being able to um, see people and probably the the maybe the connotations that that has in practice about um, maybe owners being able to come into hospitals. I know that's, that's probably quite variable at the at the moment. But I imagine a lot of places aren't having um, owners in in hospitals. So, so are you are you worried about some con, you know, about um, I suppose how we're going to transition to to that phase to to whatever normal is going to be.
1: Yeah, sure. And I think this is something that we're seeing that it's understandable people are worried about this. You know, this it's been a year that, you know, those kind of social um, contacts have been different, have been interrupted. Those interpersonal contacts at work have been very, very different. And I think any change to those is going to be challenging. Um, those, that happening at the same time as perhaps a whole lot more social contact might even feel overwhelming for people. And I think that's really normal given what we've all been through. And I think it's there's a lot of uncertainty in that as well and maybe challenges for particular individuals. So groups of people maybe who are... Um, have um, underlying health conditions who maybe still have worries, um, people maybe who've experienced bereavement, and maybe haven't had time to grieve and get all of the support for that yet. And um, maybe people who have themselves experienced illness and are um, experiencing ongoing effects from that. So there's a whole lot of different things that have been going on for people. There's also people and I know this applies to a lot of people in our professions whose caring responsibilities have massively increased um, childcare and um, caring for relatives. Um, other types of caring and those may not reduce at the same ti- at the same time or at the same rate as all of these other expectations of social contact and being in different places increase. And that puts pressure disproportionately on certain groups of people and I think the challenges particularly for, um, for parents um, for women um, for people um, with caring responsibilities for vulnerable people in their families and their household, it's really important that we consider the impacts on those people. Um, Because all of these changes are being asked of them at the same time as they're still being asked to do more of that caring than they used to have to do. And that's really challenging.
0: So so are there things that we can do now about that or should think about um, individually or as as a profession?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are things we can do. And I think one of the really key things is supporting managers to have good listening conversations with staff because we don't wanna be finding out about those challenges like months down the line when it's actually gone wrong for somebody or it's too much or that person is completely overwhelmed. And some people feel overwhelmed with it right now and that is very understandable. So I think one of the things we can do, is get managers really well trained in active listening. And there's some great examples of people thinking about doing this. There's a program called um, React in the NHS um, that's about listening skills for managers. It's just over an hour long program about active listening, and it's designed to help people to have conversations with staff um, and to understand um, a bit of what's going on for them. So active listening training is is really useful and is well-evidenced for line managers in a variety of different ways. Um, and I think it is an individual thing it is a case of managers understanding individual situations and also managers having the right support because managers have been through so often through this pandemic we have looked to managers to help and managers have taken on this enormous uh, role of trying to Coordinate a huge amount of new health and safety information and concerns and keep staff safe. I am trying to do sometimes what's felt like impossible things with rotors and other things to maintain patient care against you know very extreme staffing situations that we've never experienced before. And so I think it's really important that we think about those managers as well. And one of the things that applies to all staff and is really important right now is thinking about something called decompression. Um, so this is the idea when people have been working in very high demand situations which we all have. Um, and that includes people who've been working from home and doing childcare, and that's very high demand as well. It's not just people who work in PPE who've been in a high demand situation through this, um, it's across the veterinary professions. And so thinking about how we can give individuals opportunities to decompress and to rest and to have um, sort of meaningful social contacts and to have good nutrition and to sleep and things like that. So those kind of opportunities for decompression and thinking about decompression really important um and again the solutions for those may be quite individual but it's important to consider that it's also really important right now that people are acknowledged and thanked for how hard this has been and everything they've done because there is definitely something right now about recognition people are tired and a lot of people are struggling with motivation and that is completely understandable and it is important that we see that. And I think one of the challenges that VET often has is that, is around that recognition. And I think sometimes, you know, when people look to clients maybe for validation or for recognition, um, that can be quite difficult. And some of our clients are incredibly grateful and incredibly thankful and do communicate that. But our clients are often not in a position to do that. You know, they don't have the resources or um, they've got a lot going on themselves. And I think it can feel quite precarious when people are relying on clients for that. And so I think it's so important that as professions we provide that and then it matters less whether clients are in a position to provide that for staff because we are providing that for staff, so staff know that they 're valued they know that they 're respected they know that their contribution is noticed and appreciated so thinking about ways to do that is is really important too
0: that 's great and you um you spoke about some bereavement as well, and I was just wondering because I, I imagine that and um, um, for a variety of, of reasons, um, so many of us might have to deal with that at the at the moment, uh, um, you know, COVID-19 um, as well. Um, and I suppose, can you maybe give some tips about how to, to help people with bereavement?
1: Yeah, this is such an important issue because I think all of the things that we would do before COVID to try and um, cope with bereavement, to try and cope with loss, to try and process. So many of those have been disrupted or even prevented over the last year. And it is very, very important we look out for people around us who have been bereaved and offer them support. And I think, again, this is quite individual, but things that are important, and um, we know from people who've experienced bereavement, um, particularly certain types of complex bereavement are that um often people don't know what to say and so don't say anything and often it's better just to talk and to ask and to talk about the person who's died if they if the person wants to talk about them and just to have those conversations and to be there you don't need to know what to say you just need to turn up and listen um and I think that turning up part is really important I remember speaking to a friend of mine who had been bereaved and she said something to me incredibly powerful um she was talking about walking through her village and she'd had a a very traumatic bereavement and she was walking through her village and people would cross the road when they saw her coming including her friends because they just didn't know what to say and they felt so awkward and they didn't want to upset her but because of that she ended up almost totally alone with this very, very traumatic bereavement that she'd experienced and she just wanted them to say something. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that there's guidance around support for bereaved people as well, that people can read in terms of just how to to feel confident in offering that support. And I, I think that's really important. I think it's also important that employers think about what support might be necessary for people who've experienced those challenges as well. And
0: so when you talk about sort of complex um, bereavement, Rosie, it, 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 it's the, the other um, aspect that we're aware of in, in a profession, but I suppose in every profession as well, as, is related to, to suicide. And is there any difference in the way we should approach bereavement in, in, in that instance?
1: Yeah, so this is an important issue for the veterinary profession. It's something that Life is involved in as well. So, one of the services that most people don't know that Vet Life offer is support for practices for veterinary professionals who have been buried by suicide. Um, and it's actually part of a program of work that we have that's around suicide postvention. Um, and that's it's a bit of a strange word, but what it means is it's around the importance of providing support following a suicide um, in part to help prevent further suicides because we know that suicides occur more frequently in people who are bereaved by suicide we also know that sometimes where there has been a bereavement by suicide it can be followed by further suicides and so and there are absolutely things that can be done to help to stop that and to prevent it and to provide support for those people so that's a really important and quite a quiet part of our work that not many people know that we do um, I've been doing that for a number of years now and <sighs> it's really humbling I think working with people and supporting people who have experienced that bereavement um, in terms of their resilience in terms of what they get through um in terms of the compassion that occurs in those spaces the way that they so much care often within practices for staff and wanting to support other staff and wanting to help um, so it's important that we think about this I think that in suicide bereavement as well It's really important for people to know that it's normal to experience a whole range of different emotions, often to feel quite angry at the person, to blame yourself, to feel it was your fault. There's something we talk about in suicide bereavement called the tyranny of shoulds. And this is where you maybe start saying to yourself, well, I should have done this, I should have done that. What if I'd done this? What if I'd. And you can torment yourself with it. And so it's so important that people who are bereaved by suicide have the opportunity to talk to people who understand suicide bereavement. And sometimes that's other people who've been bereaved by suicide and there's networks of support groups. Um, sometimes it's talking to a helpline um, sometimes it's talking to friends, to family, to other people. But it's so important. People have those opportunities and to know that suicide bereavement is not linear. As well, you know, people talk maybe about different stages of grief, but potentially traumatic grief um, and complex grief. And um, it isn't linear at all. Um, you know, you can go from a whole range of different emotions in a very short space of time. Another thing that I think a lot of people find really challenging to understand sometimes in suicide bereavement is that the people who are very affected by bereavement, by suicide, are not only the people who are very close to the person um so and this is it's it's sometimes very difficult for people to understand from the outside but sometimes people who um, maybe didn't even know the person that well maybe met them a few times but identified with them or identified with something that's been going on for them can sometimes be very very affected by suicide bereavement so the key for me in terms of support with suicide bereavement is there is no time limit on it um being aware that people who are distant as well as who are proximate can be very affected by it. And there is no shame in that. That is quite a thing that happens. Um, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with those people. It's just a thing that happens and it's important they get support. Um, it's also important to think about things like anniversaries in terms of bereavement and key dates, um, particularly at the moment where some of our rituals of grief, maybe like funerals or memorials, aren't as easy to hold. Um, So things like inquests can be really, really difficult times for people involved. There's also a really big effect with how others talk about the person's death in public spaces, like on social media or in the veterinary press, those kinds of things. And there's actually a huge evidence around the way that we speak about suicide. And This is a very, very, very important thing in preventing future suicides, because certain types of reporting presentation around suicide can directly lead to further deaths that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it is as stark as that. So it's very, very important that when we're talking in social media spaces and public spaces, that we follow guidance around best practice around talking about suicide.
0: Is, is that guidance uh, international?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a number of different countries have their own guidance. The World Health Organization has core guidance on this that was published in 2008 that's freely available on their website. Um, Samaritans produce guidance. Um, the American Association Suicide Prevention produced guidance. There's guidance in Australia. There's guidance around a lot of countries around the world. Um, There's also um, different types of guidance. There's um, some guidance available for young people talking about suicide, for talking about suicide in social media spaces. Um, I've produced some guidance recently for vets that's available in the Veterinary Record um, as a short news piece for people. It's only 800 words long. So yeah, absolutely, that stuff is international and it's very, very well evidenced. Um, And it's it's so important because it, it is something that everybody can do to help to prevent suicide. Do
0: you think, as a profession, that we have a good understanding of of bereavement? I suppose I was, I was trying to think because we are uh, a, a, prof- a profession that that looks at animal welfare and and tries to sort of judge whether um, you know a, a, a patient under our care or an animal has a quality of life that that we think that we have a better understanding that we than we do.
1: I think there is something in veterinary culture around. And in veterinary identity, which is kind of what it means to us to be a vet, that is very much around dealing with everything on our own. So when I was doing research into veterinary identity, um, I was was part of a bigger study that was following people's experiences as they transitioned into veterinary practice. And I think one of the key things that brought this home to me was um, thinking about the point at which people felt like they were real vets. And it wasn't when they passed finals, it wasn't when they graduated, it wasn't when they said the declaration or signed the register, it wasn't when they started work. It was actually much later at a point where it was very similar between almost everybody in the study, where they felt that they could do very difficult things completely on their own, so completely unsupported without any help at all. And I think that sense of myself as an island, that I have to be completely self-reliant, that there's something sort of maybe um, that I'm not a proper vet if I need help. That is really kind of concerning and possibly quite toxic part of my identity. But I think it definitely does lead into this as well as it is it sort of leaks into so many areas um, in terms of. People's ability to feel able to access support, access help, um, and I think, yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes people do put pressure on themselves that they should be able to deal with this just as they deal with everything else, and it's almost that um, they've got so used to maybe experiencing stigma or that they shouldn't ask for help that that they don't ask for help with this either. And I think sometimes that is really important. Um, it is also important to know though that some people do ask for help and that for various different reasons they're not able to access it and so it's not just about telling people to ask for that help and support if they're struggling with bereavement or anything else it's also about listening really carefully to the reasons why people may have tried to find it and have not found it because there absolutely can be obstacles and it's very important we don't just like say to individuals, oh, well, you're not asking because some people do ask and they don't always find it. And so we need to change that. And that's a big thing that needs to change. And
0: with that identity, as we were sort of talking a, a little earlier, are we, as a profession, do you think we're, we're helping ourselves with, with getting away from this sort of insular um, way of looking at our, our profession and also the support that we have? on it and and you know I'm not say, saying that um that absolutely anything's wrong but but um I know that you know vet life all, everyone involved in that is from the veterinary team and um other other societies sort of within the the um profession are, are all again members of the of the veterinary team and do we do we try and solve our own problems by by ourselves and is that is that a a, a bright approach or I suppose do dentists doctors um people in the military police do they have that as well or or, or should we try and you know stretch out a bit and, and open up a bit more or maybe let other people in
1: yeah it's such a good question and um, i think that there's an element of both that's needed so where peer support is good and by peer support i don't necessarily mean like trained peer supporters i just mean your colleagues what we would typically call sort of horizontal support in the workplace so people kind of at your level in your workplace, um, the people you interact with commonly. Also, vertical supports in the workplace, so really good active listening and support via management um, at every stage of management. Um, so, horizontal and vertical supports in the workplace are very strongly evidenced in workplace mental health, particularly in times of difficulty. There's been studies done in epidemics before with healthcare workers, and one of the things that helped was both horizontal and vertical supports. However, Um, I think there are some really important things to consider within that. And one of those is people who may be at higher risk of not being able to access that support. So maybe where there isn't good communication in a team, maybe where there's, there's discrimination, maybe where there's structural factors that are inhibiting that support. Those absolutely have to be addressed. But as well as that peer support, there are times when absolutely we need professional and other help as well. And some of that can come in the form of expertise. So, for example, um, you know, the kind of training that I was talking about before, the active listening for managers. So looking outside at the evidence on what helps, looking at really high quality training, those kinds of things. And. Um, But it's also in terms of individual support, there absolutely will be points where people are maybe experiencing mental health conditions or they're experiencing um, levels of stress that are affecting their ability to function at work. And it's very important those people are able to get professional support and help.
0: That's excellent. Um, so um, and, and it, what, what sort of work do you think within the, uh, uh, the veterinary identity we need, to, um, we need to look further into? Or is there just so much uh, untapped um,
1: things a to, lot to do? So one of the things that I think is really important is how we present alternative identity paths to people um, because people tend to follow things that are kind of set out already so they follow paths that are generally available to them. And I think some of the paths that we have and some of the values we have within our identity around not wanting to be perceived as weak and to perceiving needing support as weak um, and wanting to do everything alone, um, things like that, come or that you're a burden on other people if you need help, those kinds of ideas, they're potentially really harmful. And so it's how we think about how we can make it easier for people to adopt alternative identities where um, seeking support is seen as a strength, and it is, Um, and where um, asking for help at work is a patient safety issue and is a responsible and um, progressive thing to do. Um, So thinking about how we can do that, and part of that is around role modelling, part of it is around support for leaders. Part of it is around capacity building and showing good staffing, so there's really structural things that matter as well in order to be able to um, make those changes for individuals. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important, I think it's actually really important in veterinary suicide prevention as well, that we think really carefully about some of the messages that we have um, around veterinary identity and what it means to be a vet and the challenges that vets face.
0: But when um, so do you, so you do you do you call yourself a, a, a vet? Oh, that sounds like a very strange question. But you are, do you, do you have that that, that re- identity, or do you look at someone else such as a, I don't know a cattle vet or an equine vet as a as a vet?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. I do call myself a vet, um, and I think it's really important that we can, in all of the different roles we have as vets, that we can quite unapologetically call ourselves vets. Um so just because it's been a while since I did a certain procedure it doesn't make me any less or any more of a vet than anybody else. Just because I've published papers in veterinary journals, that doesn't make me a better vet or more of a vet than anybody else. And I think broadening that sense of what it is to be a vet, I think sometimes there are fears around that, you know, and some of those go to, you know, real issues around perhaps recruitment into clinical roles, those kinds of things. But actually there is something quite quite challenging about this idea of a real vet as somebody who does um, generally the things that are associated with ideas around being a real vet and what we call certain high status types of veterinary work. So particularly surgery, particularly certain types of surgery, um, particularly um, loan on call. Um, and all of the things that we kind of associate with being a real vet um, have potential downsides if those are inflexible and if those are um, required because it means that for those individuals as well that if they um, want to go on to other roles for example if somebody wants to transition from maybe doing a lot of surgery into supervision and management as we often will in roles of seniority that that can then pose challenges for them that they start feeling disconnected from what it means to be a real vet and so I think it's very important for individuals in fact to have permission to understand what their values are what makes them feel alive in their work what motivates them because we know that those things are actually really important to well-being at work feeling alive in your work is one of the two dimensions of the very technical definition of thriving at work Um, the other dimension being the opportunity to grow and develop Um, And so it's important that vets can connect with those things and not just these particular status um, sort of sentinel things about what it means to be a vet. Because actually um, being a vet can be a whole range of different things. And I think the more flexible and the more broad we make that, um, the easier it will be for us to support each other and to seek support um, when we're in those situations. So... um, i've definitely had times when i've wondered if i'm a real vet and i sometimes find myself when i'm talking to students saying things like i still do some clinical practice and it's interesting how they react to that because it's almost as though i'm somehow more relevant if i still do clinical practice and i challenge myself on that as well that why am i saying that still why do i feel that i need to mention that to maintain a kind of credibility with practice and maintain a link, and and should I be doing that? So I think there's points for leaders to reflect on this as well about how do we role model what's important in vet.
0: It, it, I imagine <clears throat> there's a couple of PhDs in in this, isn't there? Because I, I, I suppose I know or, you know have colleagues um, refer to spending time with a real vet. You know, I'm talking about you know. Specialists themselves in, in a certain field in the in the veterinary profession, referring to a, a colleague, you know, doing call cool as as a real vet. Have definitely my colleagues in my year have re- referred to other people, in our year as real vets, and and um, it's quite it's quite interesting, isn't it? And you, I suppose, it is that do, are we are we tied to that uh, practical element or the actual physical doing certain things as as that and i wonder whether because that the, the um in the in the uk for people outside the uk all creatures great and small has reinserted itself on tv in a new version and done done pretty well i, I believe i wonder whether is this a good thing for our profession to to revert back to um you know his, historical times of, of general practice is that is that good for our identity or or is is that gonna have have knock-on effects
1: it's a really interesting question to think about some of these cultural representations of in medicine and the type of work that we do, and I think it's it's fascinating watching the way that the public kind of um, love those and interact with those, and the way that many vets do as well. And I think you know they can remind a lot of people about original motivations for going into vet. I think one of the key things for us to think about in terms of our professional identity is that one of the traps that a lot of vets fall into and for completely understandable reasons is that we make all of our self-esteem and all of our identity and all of our validation as a human being and all of our worth around our work and so our meaning is caught up in who we are as a vet. And if we then also have a very narrow idea of what it is to be a vet, that I'm only a proper vet or a real vet if I'm doing these certain key things, whether or not those are good for me, whether or not I enjoy those, whether or not those are available to me because of illness or because of caring responsibilities or because of other things, that I can only find that meaning because of those things. And the reason people fall into this as a trap is because actually – In vocational professions those things can provide good well-being for a while because that does have a huge amount of meaning in the work that we do and it's hugely interesting and it's very easy for your whole life to become around this very narrow idea of what a clinician is or what a good vet should be and actually the difficulty is having that very narrow sense of identity that's very caught up in certain type of veterinary work. If anything comes along that makes that difficult so whether it's client incivility, client complaint, um, whether it's a difficult outcome, whether it's um, loss of a job, changing role, um, whether it's um, actually losing interest in that type of work and wanting to move into something else. People can feel very, very attacked and trapped. Um, so even when people themselves have maybe lost interest or lost motivation for that particular type of work, if their whole identity is caught up in being that thing that I have to be a real vet, then they can feel very, very trapped and it can be very hard to generate alternatives. Whereas if we respect and give status to all of these other important things that we do in vet, like supporting, supervising and mentoring colleagues, if we gave that higher status, it's interesting to kind of have a thought experiment about what might happen. Because if we gave it high status that you know these are the people who mentor and support you know new graduates or who um, mentor and support students and help to prepare for family work, um, or these are the people who you know, teach others to do specific if we gave those things high status it 's kind of interesting to think about. Um, Well, we're giving support higher status and we're talking about things like reciprocity, that it's good for people to be involved in support, which it is, which potentially makes it easier for other people to access that support, because if they think they're kind of not burdening the person and actually the person might like that work and the person's getting benefits from doing that work, then it's much easier to engage in something like getting support. Um, So it's kind of interesting to have those thought experiments about, well, what if what we thought of being a real vet was different and how might that affect wellbeing? And I think it's really interesting to think about some of those questions and there's potentially some real hope in there as well, that if we could make it a bit flexible, what it means to be a real vet and to be a good vet. And if we could start to afford those other really core roles in vet as being high status as well, um, in terms of being desirable and being respected and being um, held in esteem by colleagues, then that's super, super important. It could be something we could all do to assess.
0: Do, are, are there uh, similarities in in other um, professions, what, what, whatever that necessarily means? But um, w- with that, a sort of identity, like, is a, a do policemen think that if you're not on the street doing the beat, then you're not a policeman? Like, are, are, and. and- are there things that we can learn from other industries or, um, or professions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are definitely similarities in other professions and other areas of work. Um, and there's absolutely things we can learn as well. Um, so it can definitely be the case that people who've done clinical work in other professions can feel very trapped um, and can feel that they don't have other alternatives and that's partly trapped by their own sense of what it is to be a professional. So, um, yeah, there absolutely are absolutely things we can learn and things we can do in terms of support and in terms of understanding our professional culture and making our professional culture a bit healthier for people because really our culture and the values that we share between each other should be things that help us and support us and um, give us meaning and um, make our profession a good place to be and a place we can be very proud to be. And I think those are changes that can happen. It is possible to change professional culture, and I would love to see that start to happen.
0: Well, I think um, that's uh, that's great. I, I did um, want to mention that a, 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 yeah, there's a, a few things that happen in, in um, um I suppose in the RVC community, unfortunately, the sad passing of, of Graham Milligan and, and Nick Short, and, um, and in the ACTVET community, Josh Smith. And um, I suppose uh, with um, with Nick, he was a, a big part of um, uh, of the Veterinary Benevolent Fund that I believe was a, a transition to into vet life and. Um, also he was instrumental with uh, e media and and um brian who uh, who runs these uh, runs these podcasts was his his boss and also allowed us to to do these podcasts so i suppose i just want to um uh, pass on our condolences to all the all those sort of families in involved and um, uh, um uh, around this around this around this time and um, um and wish them all the support and please find the support in whatever country that you do you have um, if you were if you have any any sort of um, concerns that have been brought up obviously by this by this podcast
1: yeah absolutely and I would say for people in the UK that if you're struggling with bereavement and um, it's it's really important to be able to talk to somebody and if you're a veterinary professional within the UK you can call that life anytime and 24 hours a day 365 days a year our number is 03030402551, or you can contact us via a message on our website. Um, there's a confidential um, email service available via our website for people. Um, I think also it's, you know, Nick certainly was a personal friend of mine, and I think it's it's so important to remember the legacy of people um who have enriched our profession so much and brought so much to them um and i think to be able to share those memories and to talk with other people is really important
0: well thank you um so much for for your your time oh I, I, there was um um so one, one more question if that's all right with regarding to um to vet life if what, what would you do differently or prepare differently, um, with your vet life hat on, um, Rosie, if, if they say there was another uh, global pandemic, like what, how, how do you think you would, would you do things differently? Would, do you think we can refer to the sort of playbook if you like, of, of, um, what's happened in the last sort of 12 months to, to, to use that in the future? Or do you think it would be, have to be a bit more dynamic?
1: I think, yeah, there's so much we could learn from what's happened. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is how um, people who already experience certain types of discrimination have been further disadvantaged in this time of hardship. So I think perhaps an urgent issue for us to think about as a profession is how do we address some of those um, inequalities That we have and some of the discrimination that we have within our profession I think it's really important that we think about that. Um, I think as well one of the things that has really struck me and also it being 20 years um, since the um, Foot and mouth epidemic in the UK, and talking with vets um, who remember that and um, experiences that people have and memories. I think one of the things that's come up so much is how important it is that we have really good support from peers, and I think that everybody in the veterinary community could could feel able to do active listening to support someone else who's struggling and there's training available to support people to learn that as a skill for support for colleagues Um, also to learn about things like suicide prevention and things that everybody could do and I think preparing people in that way is really important. There's something else that's been talked about um, in the NHS. Um, uh, Professor Neil Greenberg um, who's actually involved in that life health support has been talking about this a lot in the NHS Um, and one of the things he's talking about is something called um, psychological PPE. So psychological personal protective equipment so not just thinking about kind of a visor and a plastic apron and all of the other things that we do and the masks and everything else um but also thinking about how can we prepare ourselves and how can we protect ourselves psychologically for difficult events and i think that's a really interesting thing to think about from a veterinary perspective um and some of those very core wellbeing needs that we're not always good at attending to in vet not just because of individual reasons but sometimes because we're prevented to by structures within our work so thinking about this from both a uh, work job design perspective working conditions but also from an individual perspective and some of it is as core as things like nutrition exercise sleep rest spaces relaxation but it's also things like rotating people from very difficult roles um, giving people proper opportunities for decompression and rest um, making sure there's really good emotional active listening support in the workplace um, and just really really supporting managers uh, who carry a lot of difficulty at times like this so yeah I think there's a lot we could be doing and thinking about um, in terms of um, that kind of psychological PPE as well.
0: And, and um, Rosie, do you, do you have a, a plan of something that you're looking forward to that you can you can share with us or is, is that um, to, to run a marathon when it's uh, when it's allowed?
1: Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to being able to go running again. Um, I'm also, um, I think, just I'm so fortunate in that although separate um, physically from a lot of my friends, I'm able to talk and communicate with them. And I think one of the real things for me through this has been thinking about quality of relationships and one of the things we know is really important in well-being is around relationship quality not quantity so thinking about how can build and strengthen those relationships and maintain those and um support people around you i think that's um, been quite an interesting thing to think about during all of this as well
0: and um and what, what sort of research plans have you have you got that you might be able to 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 share understand if if, if you can't for the next year
1: So I'm hopefully got another project starting in the next few months that's looking looking at a very applied aspect of veterinary suicide prevention. And I think one of the real challenges in veterinary suicide prevention is, especially when you're also involved in support and post-bereavement support, as I am, is that everything feels too slow because you want to be there actually preventing suicides and helping. And um, so it is great to finally be able to get to this project, and um, which is one I've been hoping to do for quite some time, looking at a very applied area of um, potentially ways that we can improve people's safety in veterinary workplaces. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to starting that.
0: Well, uh, hopefully, uh, Rosie, we can we can chat again um, next year and, and catch up with you about that and, and how the uh, the rest of twenty twenty one has been and the, and the start of twenty two. If that's um, if that's okay, that would be lovely. Would, would you mind giving the uh, Vet Life number again, please?
1: Not at all. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to. So, for people to call Vet Life in the UK, it's twenty four hours a day, every day of the year. It's 0303. 040 And what I actually recommend for veterinary professionals is that even if you think you don't need to call right now, put it in your phone 0303 040 2551. And then if you know somebody who needs it, you can send it on to them. Um, you can also contact us by the website www.vetlife.org.uk.
0: Well, thank you so much again, Rosie, and we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, and thank you for for listening. So you don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't have to worry about missing your podcast. Um, if you could leave us a five star review, that would be great on your podcast provider, and tell your friends, um, vet friends, or other friends. We will welcome anyone to to listen to this show. So we'll play some show notes and some links to vet life on the RVC pages. So if you just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye